You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com slash boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC. Member SIPC. He has abdicated government here by declaring us out of his protection and waging war against us. He is at this time transporting large armies of foreign mercenaries he has excited to complete the works of death and for imposing taxes on us without our consent, our he is for cutting our off our trade with all parts of the world on the high seas, warfare. to bear arms protecting against their country, to become the executioners of the friends and brethren, should commit on the for taking away our charters. He has plundered our seas, ravaged our coasts, burnt our towns, and destroyed the lives of our people. We all know the famous lines from the Declaration of Independence. When, in the course of human events, we hold these truths to be self-evident, or life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, we know this part of the Declaration. But it's just a small part of the document. And the rest of the document goes like this. The history of the present King of Great Britain is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations, all having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. To prove this, let facts be submitted to a candid world. And these facts, the listing, are called the grievances. Some of them seem anachronistic, you know, some of them don't seem to apply. But if you read them, I think you can gain, I think you can gain from them a better understanding of how the American government was set up, why we are who we are even today. I'm very pleased on the show today to have Tim Patrick, who is a listener to the program, and he is the author of Self-Evident, The Ideas and Events That Made the Declaration Possible. Tim, thanks for coming on. Thank you very much for having me. The idea I like about your book is that you can just sit down and learn the topic in one afternoon. It's designed that way. But you go over the declaration and do it not line by line, but significant lines, and give a little bit of background. That's right. The goal is that these are somewhat short books, meant to be read in three or four hours, get a good overview of some topic. The grievances sum up the reasons why Americans were seeking independence from Great Britain. I think they haven't reached the level of remembrance of the lofty language of the earlier sections of the Declaration Probably because some of them are contemporary to the time. Some of them seem a little nitpicky. Yeah, the grievances were very specific to their time. Some of them are important for us today. And we all remember the one that we learned back in school about uh, no taxes without representation. For imposing taxes on us without our consent. Um, that one actually shows up as number 17 quite far down the list. 
halfway through the list. Yeah, before that, you got he has erected a multitude of new offices. He has kept among us in times of peace, standing armies without the consent of our legislatures. He has effected to render the military independent of and superior to civil power. He has refused his assent to laws, the most wholesome and necessary for the public good. You know, if order means anything, and you have to figure they're arranging it in some kind of order of of how, you know, egregious these are, um, taxation is pretty down there, you know, considering the the importance it has today. Yeah, I was surprised at how how much Parliament and and the king were injecting themselves into American, uh, the American life. Um, They definitely were, you know, 3,000 miles away. They weren't really just sitting there having daily conversations with the colonists. And yet here they are, you know, waltzing in saying, in all cases whatsoever, we get to dictate everything that goes on in your lives and you better like it or else we're going to send a whole bunch of nice soldiers in red coats over to make sure that you agree with us. Yeah, and some blue-coated Hessians and green-coated loyalist militia, hostile Indian tribes on the northwest border as well. They're not all about taxes. Um, I think that comes out of the stamp tax. That's whether in the Boston Tea Party, them being so uh, such prominent events that you get you hear so much about it. But there's a lot about, say, free trade, about limiting what colonists can do, who they can sell to, what they can make. Well, there was the uh, number 16 about world trade. For cutting our trade off with the rest of the world. The colonists didn't have a lot of control over how they could trade if, if England decided, you know, they were going to be a boss about it. So, for example, some local tradesmen might want to make wool and sell it to other colonies or, or make hats out of that wool and transport it either within the colonies or overseas. And England could, actually did just up and say, no, I'm afraid you can't do that without our permission. And you can't even put those hats on a horse and take them to the next colony because that constitutes international trade. And we're going to control that. So important. And when you think about why there was a revolution, I see questions on the Internet sometimes. Why do the Americans even rebel? Maybe it could have been settled peacefully. I mean, perhaps it could have, but things like this were, were choking colonists. It's funny. We don't think of like, we fought the American Revolution for free trade, especially in the wake of today's debates and and if we value globalism and free trade. But America was struggling to be a globalist country. And then there's just an old-fashioned anti-regulation argument. Yeah, I think that plays right into the concerns of a lot of modern Americans that all this regulation and all these, you know, government workers are are taking over our lives and not letting us run our businesses and, you know, deal with our schools. And um, it, it wasn't exactly the same back then. They, they were definitely really eating out their lives, right? They, all these soldiers would come in and, and say, we're going to force this upon you. We don't have the soldiers standing there, there today, but I think our American um, personality is that, that we're always on guard against that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, rendering the military independent of and superior to the civil power, cutting off trade, dissolving representative houses repeatedly for opposing with manly firmness his invasions on the rights of people. These are all grievances that deal with tyranny. 
you know, you can see why we're set up with a government, a lot of checks and balances as we have. Anything else strikes you in these grievances as really being in line with the politics of today? The the naturalization one, of course, has has been the talk of the town since Trump became president, uh, where King George was preventing uh, them from populating their states, not only expanding the geography of their of their colonies, but also allowing people to come in. He has endeavored to prevent the population of these states for that purpose, obstructing the laws for naturalization of foreigners, refusing to pass others to encourage their migrations hither, and raising the conditions of new appropriations of lands. Yeah, number seven. You're telling me we fought a war and it came to muskets over preserving immigration? England had rules about how quickly you could become a citizen once you were living within the boundaries of the empire. And a lot of these colonies were competing with each other to say, hey, if you come over and move into our colony, we'll grant you quicker citizenship, which, of course, England rejected that. But then they tried the tactic that, well, maybe you can't be a British citizen right away, but you can you can be a, a, perhaps a New Jersey citizen even faster. And the important part of that was that because of the mercantile restrictions on, on trade among the different countries, foreigners who lived in the British Empire couldn't always sell their wares to different areas, different parts of the empire or outside the empire. And becoming citizens was a way that they could expand their business beyond just their little community. Yeah, I mean, of course, in these discussions, it's necessary to say, I mean, the country wasn't well-populated, almost every colony was encouraging immigration strongly, advertising for it, uh, giving land in some cases to travelers. I will say, though, sometimes, you know, it it came in through the seaport, but many cities and towns in, a, in America wanted to get the immigration moving past those seaport cities that were already gaining some population and building the wagon road and getting people through Pennsylvania, settling western Pennsylvania, down Virginia, and and into the North Carolina colonies. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. There, there was a differentiation between whether the executive had the power to push these limits or whether the legislature had the power to do that. And I I've heard a lot of that today in in the battle over, you know, should we disallow certain people from certain countries from entering America? President Trump will make these statements, executive orders, saying it's going to be this way. Uh, But, of course, the real power to do that was always supposed to be in in our House as a representation in the Congress. And over the last several decades, there's this back and forth about, well, who really has the power to make these decisions about immigration? Is it the president? in his executive branch, or is it the Congress? And and 
divided between the Senate, the Senate and the House of Representatives. And of course, it was always supposed to be the House of Representatives. That's where the founders wanted all the power. I think some of the founders, I think, for instance, Thomas Paine, James Madison, both wanted one body, one Congress. Uh, other founders wanted uh, Senate to be a check on it. Today, we have a very different perspective, almost a King George-like perspective, where the power is in the exe- in the executive, and we we focus so much on oh, what did he what did he say today, or what executive order is ruining our lives today, and and it it definitely wasn't the viewpoint of the people back then that the executive would have all this power. It was definitely a, a legislative thing is where they wanted to put that power. Yeah, and I think the grievances go to show it. There's a number about interrupting legislative sessions or stopping them from what they need to do, which indicates the important of the legislature, uh, the importance of the legislature in their mind. And the Constitution really has all bills originating with the legislature, money bills originating with that house, the people's house. Um, Article 1, again, if we think order has anything to do with it, why wouldn't order have a little bit to do with it, right? I mean, you know, you're writing a document, you know, what do you want to do first? Build a Congress first. I mean, it, it implies something. How strong that implication is, I wouldn't go too far with, but it implies something. They really wanted the power there. I do think there were a few founders, and I'm thinking about Washington and Madison here in particular, that were none too pleased, say, uh, with the actions of legislatures, with the actions of some of the state legislatures, with the inability of the Confederation um, legislatures to take significant action. So there's also powers for the executive in that document so that they wouldn't have suffer under the oppression of either an incompetent executive or an incompetent legislative. But yeah, I think in a tie, it went to the legislative for almost all people at those times. We've changed. And it's way too much focus and almost goes without saying on the president of the United States each day. I would have told you that in the beginning of the Obama administration when in 2009, in January or February, when Obama was a superhero, uh, that could do no wrong and was going to fix the entire country uh, in a few months. And now I certainly say it when all of the news media is either focused on the positive or negative of the social media that the president is is using. Let's go back and think about these guys and how they suffered from the tyranny of an executive and then take a, a lesson from that. Um, and the immigration issue is just one of those. I think it's frozen because the legislature hasn't been able to take action. That that ties directly to the early parts of the document that are so focused on natural rights that it is the people and not not even the legislature, but the people themselves that that possess this power granted to them by the creator. And that even if you dissolve a legislature, that power doesn't go away. It was always in the people and it's going to stay there. And they get to say what to do. Um, One group that was a strong immigrant group were the Germans. And, of course, Scots-Irish as well, which really built America at this time. And it's interesting because the Germans that were here were very pro-independence. The ones that had settled in America really were, you know, had no love for Great Britain. But King George was related, uh, and then all the Georgian kings were related to the Principality of Hesse and 
So he sent German soldiers over, and that shows up in the grievances. It's pretty scary. He was actually bringing over 30,000 of those troops. He is at this time transporting large armies of foreign mercenaries to complete the works of death, desolation, and tyranny. And that, I think there was a risk there because that was going to complement the 150,000 Germans, um, not just men, but families, that had already settled in, into the Americas uh, throughout the last hundred years since uh, England had opened up immigration to to the various colonies. I think that was a big sticking point. They they had these Germans coming into London earlier, and the Londoners didn't really like these Germans hanging around, so they sent them all over to America. And then they weren't really weren't really happy that Americans were saying, yeah, bring over your Germans. We're going to get super powerful and strong with all these workers. The corporate world is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job or your title. As former corporate executives, we know firsthand that navigating corporate waters is not easy. My family doesn't come from corporate backgrounds, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. I wish people would be able to understand in this corporate world that talking about things that don't work or identifying problems does not mean you're a problem. We'll dive deep into what happens behind fancy corporate doors or Zoom backgrounds or whatever. Are they really performance improvement plans or just a legal tool to get rid of people? I know a lot of people have been saved because of them. We've created a show to help you navigate tricky corporate situations based on research and real life experience. I have really good advice. Don't go to a strip club with your team. <laughs> Listen to the Ambi Award nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. And I think that there were there were also concerns that, you know, it was proof that England didn't really care about America so much. They weren't even willing to sacrifice their own boys to come over and, and fight us. Um, and also they, the mindset was that these German soldiers are willing to sell themselves to the highest bidder and, you know, another country would come along, offer them a little more money. And then if America could get enough funds, they could send the Germans back over to London and have them attack the country. You know, that's how disloyal they were. And, you know, why, why do you think so little of us that you'll send even these, the, the lowest of low to come battle us? Some of them like, you know, a, a grievance about sending foreign mercenaries to destroy your towns, ravage your communities, we can understand then as in now. A couple of them are a little bit harder to understand, so maybe I wish you would explain it. How did something like, he has called together legislative bodies at places unusual, uncomfortable, and distant from the depository of their public records for the sole purpose of fatiguing them into compliance with their measures. It, it's funny to read that one these days. We have such instant access to the entire world. The thought that government is, is distant or fatiguing is, is kind of a funny. That particular grievance had to do with Massachusetts legislature, and it was temporarily moved just four miles from Boston where it met for a couple of years. And they said, that's just, that's just so much work. That's fatiguing. And then I got moved to Salem for about half a year, which is 15 miles from Boston, which for us is still just a quick 10 or 15 minute drive, depending on how fast you drive. And It's a little antiquated, but I do see in that a warning for future against 
executive interference, say, with what the legislature needs to do. Now, put that in the context of investigations. Uh, why does a legislator need to do an investigation? Well, because that's how they do their job. How are you going to come up with laws if you don't investigate them? And not having access to information as part of the investigation, blocking that could directly relate to to something akin to what was done with Massachusetts. And for them, you know, that, that was just outlandish that you would put our, our offices that far from home. I don't want to go 15 miles. That's ridiculous. But that was a whole day's journey for them. Yeah, rep- representation was obviously a big issue. It was surprising how much, well, probably natural, how much emphasis they put on their legislatures. Their their judicial systems were all set up by the legislators. Um, in some cases, like in Massachusetts specifically, the, the uh, salary of the governor was set by the legislature. And when they didn't like him, they just revoked his salary and said... <laughs> Try, try to, you know, try to oppose us and, and we won't let you eat for a couple of weeks. A few grievances have to do with not just how government was oppressive, but also a lack of government that the king just kind of ceded his role and left it to no one. He has forbidden his governors to pass laws of immediate, immediate and pressing importance unless suspended in their operation till his assent should be obtained. And when so suspended, he is utterly neglected to attend to them. Well, that, that was one of the main differences in how they viewed the, the legislative role and the executive role. The legislative, the parliament was there you know, to manage the creation of laws and, and the representatives of the people within a society. I mean, I don't think you have to be a constitutional scholar to see that that might be, have something to do with um, the take care clause in the Constitution. The role of the king was to protect his citizens worldwide, wherever they may be, and they always saw themselves as obedient to King George because he was offering his protection against other countries, against violations of natural rights. They never saw themselves as subservient to the parliament because parliament offers no protection. Parliament only has to do with representation, and they were not represented in their minds. Yeah, I mean, that's always a tough one. I know that uh, some of the critics of those who early on were just criticizing Parliament and not criticizing the king, uh, you know, they, they called that a fig leaf, uh, I, know, I know, argument that really behind it was always a criticism of the king. But some people engaged in that, at least in the early going, uh, the early Congresses. I know, though, in a, in a work like, say, Tom Paine's Common Sense, the king is very much the target. So sometimes when I hear that, you know, that, oh, the American patriots were only against parliament, not against the king. I mean, it's not really true. There was a wide variety of opinion as to who was at fault in that. And the reality of it was probably not known to most Americans who wouldn't study British politics is that Lord North was uh, the Tory prime minister operating in a government very much supported by the king. So they were really were in lockstep at the time that we're talking about. Yeah, they they kept talking to their British brethren, as they called them, about this isn't only for historical reasons that we're associated, but it's good for trade, it's good for all of us, that that we have this great relationship, and every time you impose a law on us, you're destroying that relationship. And during the first Congress, two years earlier, they had 
they had sent a similar list of complaints over to King and Parliament and said, you know, these things are really bothering us. Why don't you stop doing it? And back came a letter that that was kind of flippant and, you know, said, we don't really care what you think, America. We're we're fully endowed with power to to force our way on you. And you just better get used to it. But there were there were people even in the parliament, representatives in parliament who were for the American side and argued very strongly in favor of the American cause. But it, it just wasn't enough. Oh, no doubt. You had a member of parliament wearing continental buff and blue each time he uh, went to parliament. I just think that simply they were outvoted uh, then and now. Parliament is such a large body. You know, we did have friends there, and I'm glad that you brought that up. I was I was surprised that one of the grievances has to do with Canada, but they they were upset that you know the the England had come in and said, well, you know, there's all this area which is like the Ohio River Valley and up into Minnesota and parts of modern day Canada that were officially off limits to the Americans. King and Parliament said you're not allowed to move into those areas, and then one day they just came along and said, oh, we decided to make this permanent. And Canada is going to take it all over. For abolishing the free system of English laws in a neighboring province, establishing therein an arbitrary government, and enlarging its boundaries so as to render it at once an example and fit instrument for introducing the same absolute rule into these colonies. The colonists were upset, of course, in part because they wanted to move into those areas and they no longer could. But in a more theoretical plane, they were upset that uh, Canada was a more executive-focused way of looking at things. So their executive branch would assign the roles of legislature and judiciary. And it just freaked out the Americans that so much power was given to the executive, where on the American perspective, you know, so much power has to be in the legislature. You don't, you don't want a lot in the executive or the judicial. Yeah, I've always known that right up there with taxes, free trade, ability to manufacture iron and other goods, that the proclamation line and the inability of American colonists to expand much past Pittsburgh or into the Ohio Valley where everyone, Washington, others, wanted to go was a key reason for the revolution. And again, this kind of idea that it had to come to blows because you're choking us off and a generation, you know, will be stagnant. What you bring up, which is very interesting, I hadn't realized, is that they were also afraid of having this example uh, up north that the British could point to and say, see, Canada, they're playing by the rules that we've set. Why can't you... The grievance also brings up the point of arbitrary government, which was another area that the colonists really struggled with. They they felt that parliament was just winging it, just making it up, not just parliament, but the board of trade, the British board of trade, which would have been under the king's purview, could just at, on a whim make up some rule that said we're going to force the colonists to behave this way without regard to any of the Constitution or the English Bill of Rights or any of those more essential documents. They could just arbitrarily say, this is how it's going to be. What's oft forgotten, I think, is just that idea that at any time in the future, forget about what was going on in the present in those grievances, at any time in the future, if there was not independence, 
The British could send a governor over any state that it wanted. New offices required new taxes for American people to pay for it. And very often these governors would come because they paid a sum or they were owed a favor. (laughs) Um, Two of our states, uh, just off the top of my head, New York, uh, New Jersey, are named after uh, dukes who got the favor of Charles II. They're good names, so we thank you, but I'd rather, you know, I think uh, I think it would, life was more enjoyable in a country that didn't have that threat of lords being sent over and being in charge, you know, arbitrarily. Hey, Tim, thanks for listening to My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, and thanks for coming on to talk about your book, Self-Evident. How can people find your book? They can go to the book's website, which is at owanipress.com. Owani is spelled O-W-A-N-I press.com. And it's also available on all the major booksellers like Amazon and Barnes and & Noble. And, and what they're going to get with this book is a detailed annotation, right, of the Declaration. Yeah, so I go not line by line, but, but clause by clause, and I... For those that are based on ideas like Enlightenment ideas, I go to the original sources where Jefferson would have gotten those ideas back, you know, hundreds or even a thousand years earlier. And for the grievances, I look at the historical context, try to find the exact uh, historical event that would have caused that grievance to be in the document. Thanks for being on the show, Tim. Thank you very much, Bruce. It was a pleasure. reminder about the premium podcast it can you know it really helps the program we have a good number of people at all levels we have people that are subscribing at the friends of my history can beat up your politics which is just two dollars a month i have people that are subscribing at the highest level which is the cincinnati which requires a larger investment and really are foundational supporters of the program and there's steps in between and you get various benefits as a member of the premium podcast but the most you know the the biggest benefit is the extra podcast the premium podcast from my history can beat up your politics there's 30 separate content items that we have there that are sometimes extensions of podcasts that are recorded on this channel so for instance when we did the impeachment episode, I have on the premium podcast leftovers from impeachment, which is all the stories that I kind of wanted to talk about more, but there is a time limit for any given podcast. And then we have, um, uh, when we, I talked with Laura Spinney about the Spanish flu of 1918, and I felt like because we had to delve into the politics of medicine a lot, there wasn't room to really get into some of the the stories of 1918 and what happened with that flu. And we do that in the leftovers of the flu cast, um, leftovers of the Spanish flu cast. So, you know, in the in this extra cast, I'm going to be able to talk more. I'm going to provide some interesting insight. Um, for instance, a while back, we did an episode about the emoluments clause and George Washington. Well, in an episode, I talk about the Potomac River and its importance to America. So... If you're really looking for more content, it can be as little as $2 a month. 
and uh, helps out a lot. Thanks for considering. You care about your money. Of course you do. So why aren't you listening to SoFi Daily? This podcast will keep you updated on the latest news in the stock market and how it could impact your financial life. Stay on top of what's happening. Listen to SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. That's SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts.